Hello, welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. And welcome to our live show. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who is an expert in their field, and we interview a special guest about their work in design because design is everywhere, and so are we. This episode is part of our live podcast series. Each month, members of Design Museum get a chance to enjoy a live show and ask their questions for the guests. So check out Design Museum everywhere to see more details about our live shows. Today, we are talking about teaching empathy and how to design for empathy in education. I'm joined by our guest co-host, Susie Wise, an equity design ally with a focus on culture change and building belonging in organizations. She's an adjunct professor at the Stanford D School, where she founded and led the K-12 Lab. Can't wait to hear more about that. Joining us a bit later is our special guest, Matt Cressy. Matt is the founding director of the MIT Integrated Design and Management Program and the innovation advisor and trustee at NEIA, the first middle and high school that prepares innovators to help shape the world through human-centered design. We're gonna learn all about that school. Together, we will chat about how they have incorporated empathy in education. Before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum. Check out our We Design Exhibition conversation cards. These incredibly well-designed cards bring our We Design Exhibition to your home, right to you. We Design is an exhibition that we put together that brings together creatives from different backgrounds to examine and celebrate the range of career paths and applications and their impact in design. The deck includes stories from creatives in a variety of design industries, and it includes statistics and topics of discussion around diversity and equity in design. The deck can be used alone or with friends. Hey, you can even use it over Zoom, why not? And it's available to order now on designmuseumeverywhere.org. Okay, now onto the show, designing education that includes empathy. In past episodes, we've chatted about how empathy and user research can impact the designs that people use on a daily basis. So what if we change the framework in which students and teachers learn, making empathy a tool for design thinking in education? To start our chat off, as I mentioned, we have Susie Wise. She is an equity design ally with a focus on culture change and building belonging. For 15 years, Susie has combined design research, deep empathy, and action to create change in the social sector. She's an adjunct professor at the D School, where she founded the K-12 Lab, catalyzing national projects like School Retool and the Shadow a Student Challenge. She's also a co-creator of Liberatory Design, and she is currently writing a book for the D-School's upcoming book series. Susie leads teams, builds programs, and designs for belonging. Susie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, thank you. So good to have you on the live show. Let's start off, I guess, with the million-dollar question here, right off the bat. Can you actually define empathy for us, particularly in a design context? Sure, sure. I like to think of it, and one of the ways I think empathy has been popularized even beyond design is from Brene Brown. And she really calls out three things that I think are important in naming empathy as about making connection. And those three things are perspective taking, not judging and recognizing emotions in others. So the kind of classic, if we were in a workshop setting, I might say, what's your definition of empathy? And people might say, walking in the shoes of someone else, right? So that gets to that perspective taking piece. But the notion of doing that 
for a purpose, right? In order to understand someone and what their experience is like is, is really important and the thing that we bring to design. The thing that I think about too, really the, the component parts and one of the things I did early in my career was help to start a school in Oakland. And that school was founded around design thinking as one of its key components. And because we we're opening the school with um, just kindergartners, first graders and second graders, when we knew we wanted to talk about empathy, but we weren't, we decided we wouldn't use the word empathy. And so we use the words notice and care. And so when I think about empathy, I think about those two component parts. You have to pay attention, take in that perspective, but you also have to care about what you're learning. Let's talk about the K-12 lab. In that lab, your team's always like trying to get people jumping into new, invigorating experiences. So I'm curious what led to founding the K-12 lab and, and how it kind of came to be. Yeah, sure, sure. So I ended up at Stanford as a graduate student and it was right before the D school didn't exist at that time. And I a friend suggested that I take a class called ambidextrous thinking. And that class happened to be taught that quarter by a teaching team that included David Kelly, who would go on to start the D school. And in that class, I was learning kind of the formalities of design for the first time. I had a kind of empathy and prototyping orientation in my prior practice, but I hadn't called it human-centered design yet. And that class became the group that David Kelly came to and said, you know, we're starting this thing called the D School and we want to work on some of the biggest challenges. We think that human-centered design applies to healthcare, it applies to poverty, and it applies to K-12 education. And I was the only person that anybody knew that was in the School of Education. I was getting my doctorate then. And so I was kind of the person that we would chat about, well, what would this look like? Ultimately, I think I was motivated to start the K-12 lab because I knew that if I had had human-centered design, design thinking when I was an eighth grader, my whole life would have been so different. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that was kind of part of the instigation. It was part of the early thinking of the D school that we could work in that domain. And then it was also like, for me, it just resonated as something that would be so powerful for young people. Oh, yeah. You could just imagine like if you had a time machine going back and like having that experience. I think so many designers like find design like later in life. And what if it was part of your elementary school, middle school. Right, right. Yeah. I was a kid always seeking to get out of my actual class to go do some kind of a project, <laughs> right? So I, I, you know, seventh grader running the citywide canned food drive, right? And so those kinds of project-based things I knew. And when I was introduced to design as a process, I was like, this, this is the way to really structure projects. It would have meant so much to me. That was my next question around these projects, because as we were researching the K-12 lab, it's, these are real world problems, right? Not like what you would find in a textbook. So could you describe like some of those lessons, what they look like? Sure. Yeah. I mean, and in fact, right, design is a general methodology, so you could use it to apply to anything. When we started the K-12 lab, we started by imagining that it would be great to scaffold projects for young people. What we found as we were introducing educators to design thinking is that they not only wanted to do projects with their students, they also wanted to change their schools or build new schools, or right? Yeah, and so, yeah. <laughs> so it also became a way to do projects around your own school. But we've had educators do projects from, you know, in every subject matter. And also really it's powerful to cross subject matters. 
Yeah. How about an example? Because I've seen like some like they design a boat, you know, and there's like so many things that you need to do and like learn, including like history and to actually do that. So a project that I like to talk about is one around healthcare. So this is fifth and sixth graders who are, you know, they're not going to be designing a new vaccine, but they sure. are powerfully, and when talking about empathy, they, everyone knows somebody who's dealing with some kind of a healthcare challenge. And so these just sixth graders are interviewing family members about their healthcare, whatever their diagnosis is. They do some of that work then to understand, gosh, how does diabetes diabetes work, which takes you into a whole domain of understanding about physiology, biology, et cetera. And it also then starts to allow you to ask questions about what does this mean in terms of lifestyle? And so you young people end up designing exercise programs to help their great aunt get out more and get more exercise, or they end up thinking about how they do their family meals or they end up thinking about, you know, a neighbor who is maybe trying to quit smoking and how can they support them? And, and so you end up designing all kinds of things that are actually behavioral health interventions on a certain level. It goes so, so much deeper, right, than like a textbook like problem to solve. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. love that. I want to chat about the example that came to my mind, the boat design. A lot of times these sort of non-traditional but really amazing education opportunities aren't available to low income or marginalized or, you know, historically not invested in communities. Did you tackle that at all with the K-12 lab? Like, how can we make these, I'll just say they're cool. Like, how do we make these more like project-based, richer experiences accessible to more people? Yeah. So that was um, a big part of our work. In fact, the very first school that we worked with was an independent school, but we weren't satisfied with that. We knew we could accomplish some things there, but we really wanted to ensure that we were always working kind of across sectors, across different kinds of communities. So our second and third of our early projects were in East Palo Alto and Detroit, respectively. And our sense was that, in fact, not only do all, are all kids creative, as I believe all humans are creative, but in less resource contexts, right, it can actually become even more important to offer powerful problem-solving methodologies and approaches to deeper learning. So how are you actually not just teaching to a textbook, but really bringing projects that help students collaborate, be critical thinkers, focus on deepening their approach to being able to hold a complex problem and tackle it from multiple perspectives. And also being very clear that we weren't thinking about empathy in design as only being about doing for others, but in fact, how are you creating contexts where you are co-designing, where you're working together, where you are, you know, recognizing your own strengths. So design, I think, is a really powerful opportunity to focus on the assets that all students have and bring to creative frameworks. You have so many cool projects that you're working on. So I want to hear about some of them. Can you tell us about School Retool? Yeah, so School Retool is something that we launched a few years ago. It was actually, and actually it's germane to the, the question that you asked about working in 
underserved communities as well. It was really an approach to say, we know there are schools that have done incredible work around deeper learning with students. How can we help leaders that are raising their hand to say, I want my students to be able to work in these collaborative, creative, critical thinking ways also? And what does it take to change the culture of a school? And so the idea was to introduce school leaders, high school leaders we started with, but we quickly did it across all of K-12. How can we introduce school leaders to the mindsets of design? In particular, empathy, and that's where we came up with the Shadow Student Challenge that then went national and international. Um, the Shadow Student Challenge was to say, you have to start by really understanding the student experience. And so as part of School Retool, all leaders spend a full day, kind of kick off their work, spending a full day in the shoes of a student. This is like dreams within dreams, inception stuff, because you're like, you're talking about empathy while actually having them <laughs> practice <laughs> it, right, right, by learning. Yeah, yeah that's and that's so the cool. thing. And that's the thing, right? Part of deeper learning, creative learning, design-based learning in schools is about that kind of engagement. And we often don't give those opportunities to leaders and educators. And so our approach at the K-12 lab was always to say, you have to offer to the adults the same kind of experiences you wish them to offer to the young people, right? Because yeah. it can't work without that, right? It um, seems so silly and obvious, but it's like, that just does, like you said, does, does not happen. Right. And so the power then for school leaders to have a deep empathy experience and then say to themselves, what could I design? And not what could I design for three years and then take three years to roll it out, but what is the smallest, scrappiest version of this deeper learning practice that I could try out next week with five kids to see how it works? Because then you start that flywheel of motivation that, as you know, happens in design, right? Where you try something and you learn so much and you're deepening your empathy and right, you're just like, you're moving very quickly through that kind of cycle of inspiration and kind of understanding what might work in your context. Yeah, that's cool. Can you share some of like, like you said, things people tried in terms of teaching empathy to kids? Sure, sure, sure. So a story um, I like to tell is uh, Martha Torres, so school leader, and it's not precisely about just the teaching, but it's as a school leader, right? She's thinking about how do I offer students more meaningful learning experiences? One of the practices that we know is really powerful in some schools is advisory. It's the, the deeper learning version of kind of homeroom, right? Where you have a place where teacher and student really get to know each other and they become a supportive community. It's a place where you actually have the belonging that you need to see yourself as a learner in school. So advisory is something that we know works in the world, but not all schools do it. So this leader exposed to this idea is like, what's the smallest, scrappiest version I can do of this? So she decides that the next student that gets referred to her for a disciplinary reason, she's going to sit down and actually not talk to him just about the fight that he just got into. I'm sure she handled that in whatever way was appropriate. And she's also going to talk to him about what's going on with his schoolwork and what are his classes and come to find out that like he's in a not that interesting set of classes. Maybe that's why he's picking fights with people, right? But 
uh, she looks at his classes and says, you know, we could change some things around. What's a class that would be more interesting to you? And so she right then walks him down the hall and gets him into an, a game design class. She doesn't get to change all of his classes, but she like makes this one switch, shows him that he wasn't just there. They weren't just in relationship to be disciplined. They're in relationship actually to talk about learning. And she makes that switch. And that one small thing with one kid, one shows her what's possible possible in her role, shows teachers what's possible in this school, and most importantly, shows him that somebody cares in that way. And there's a cascading effect, right? It doesn't just affect that one change. He actually starts to do better in his other classes. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. I, I love this stuff. Thank you. This is so rich and amazing. Thanks for being here and sharing that perspective. Absolutely. Listeners, to learn more about Susie's work, visit dschool.stanford.edu. We'll also post a link to the K-12 lab and some other resources. Okay, Susie, stay with us, and we'll bring Matt Cressy into our conversation after a quick break. If you enjoy this podcast, why not be part of the live podcast recording? That's right. You get to see a live recording and ask your questions via Zoom to our guests. Each month, we host a live show, and the edited episode is aired in our weekly program. That's right. In the past, we've had conversations around equity in the workplace, sustainable design materials, and making social impact through graphic design. Our guests have included spoken word artists like architect Jadi Williams, Thought Matters' Jesse McGuire, and our very own Director of Learning and Interpretation, Diana Navarrete-Rakakis. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and become a member today to attend our next live show. See you there. We're back. Susie and I are joined by Matt Cressy. Matt is the founding director of the MIT Integrated Design and Management Program. He is an expert in innovation, leadership, and product development. As an entrepreneur and founder of Design Turn, he has designed, invented, engineered, and manufactured products for startups, Fortune 500 companies, and everything in between. Since 1999, Matt has co-taught collaborative courses in product design and development at top design and business schools, including MIT Sloan, Harvard Business School, and the Rhode Island School of Design where he holds a BFA in industrial design. Matt is also on the founding team of New England Innovation Academy, the first middle and high school that prepares innovators to shape the world through human-centered design. Matt's designs derive from deep user research, creative concept generation, and rapid prototype iteration. Matt, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so nice to have you. We're always researching our guests, of course. We discovered a quote from you about the New England Innovation Academy. You said, school failed me pretty much my whole life. I learned how incompetent I was, how inadequate. What would I have become if I had been empowered instead of eroded? Can you tell us when you discovered this and thought about this and how you think it can be changed? Well, I think I first started thinking about it when I was, I don't know, probably eight years old. And that's, I think, where I started sensing that I didn't fit. And at that point in time, you're not sure what the world is looking for in another person. Hmm. And I didn't know if I had any value. And I think kids really require a lot of external validation about their value. And because I think my value was so unique. I mean, I'm a very unique person. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll say that. There was no teacher there that could really identify what was unique about me and special. And therefore, they weren't able to kind of amplify that or adjust the curriculum to my particular needs. And, you know, so at NIA, that's one of the things 
we're going to try to do. We certainly try to do that in IDM at MIT, where we adjust the curriculum to the particular kind of learning needs of each individual student. The main point here is that what I was really taught most of my life through education and, and educators was that I have no value, that I am a failure. That's what I was taught. And so I always wonder if I had left school feeling confident, feeling empowered, uh, would the unique feelings and ideas and concepts that I've worked hard to kind of bring to fruition, would they have come to fruition sooner? And where would I be now, uh, you know, as I kind of build upon all of those ideas? Mm -hmm. Oh, can we get this time machine that we were talking about in the first segment? That'd be really nice. Matt, help us bridge between like that thought process and empathy. And when did you start thinking about the importance of empathy in education? Well, you know, the whole, uh, similar to Susie, I think human-centered design didn't really enter my life until college or later. It was actually introduced to me by um, a wonderful man named Mark Harrison, uh, who was a professor and I think one of the founding faculty of the industrial design program at RISD. And Mark was, you know, not only was he an advocate for human-centered design and universal design, but he was also one of the most gentle, warm, he just effervesced warmth, you know, just being with him. And uh, that's when I realized what teachers really kind of need to be. They just, they don't, and Mark didn't do a lot, you know, he gave me this framework. That was about it, you know? And then it was really about encouragement and not letting me settle. I'd come to him, here's a design, and he'd be like, hmm. I think you could do better, you know, and it, it was really kind of like that, but he wouldn't tell me how to do better, you know, and I have students now, especially at MIT, they want a recipe. They want the answers. They want rigor. They want all these. I'm just like, that's not how it works, right? You're going to graduate. You're going to go into the world. You're going to find problems to solve where there is no one expert on it. And you have to learn how to become that expert. And that's where human-centered design comes in. It can help you become that expert, but it helps you become an expert in a way that makes, it sort of ensures that whatever you do as that expert, you do it with, in an ethical way, with integrity and with compassion, right? And hopefully with this, you know, overarching theme that we can, we can bring the world together and create a loving kind of experience for society through this pulling empathy through the whole process. I'd love to learn more about, I think you called it NIA, the New England Innovation Academy. Can you talk about the school and how, you know, human-centered design is sort of built in there? Yeah. So NIA, well, first of all, you know, we're at the very early stages. So we're having this discussion at a really kind of exciting time. It, for me, I think it's, it's one of these miraculous opportunities, gifts that you have in life. Uh, where we have a blank canvas. Uh, and I think also, as Susie was alluding to earlier, you know, it's one thing to have a, a process or a group of people working together with a process, but what can really undermine the progress of that group of people is the culture of the organization. And so we, you know, we're working very hard to build a beautiful culture as well as a beautiful curriculum 
And to do that, we're using human-centered design. You know, we're using that in how we hire people. We're using human-centered design in how we design the curriculum. We're using it in how we design the building and the space, which is this beautiful new facility in Marlboro, Mass. So, you know, um, that, that's how we're approaching it. Uh, there And then with that is this uh, very, you know, uh, sort of this preeminent kind of uh, philosophy of inclusion, of the celebration of diversity and diverse ideas and perspectives. Because uh, as we all know, uh, that diversity is the, at the heart of really great innovation, you know, great products, great businesses. And then the other element here is that uh, if we can teach all our children, you know, to use human-centered design as a reflexive kind of process, if they have a problem, the first thing they do is they investigate the problem and con connect with other people and understand what's in their hearts and what's in their minds. If they can make that their first reflex, then all the products they create throughout their life, whether it's a... Uh, pizza or a, you know, organization, or maybe it's policy, you know, maybe it's governing. And they're doing that with that methodology and that reflex. I think that will really make the fabric of society, again, more loving and more inclusive and compassionate. And I think it'll also just be a, a ton more fun, you know, <laughs> life will just be better, you know. I was curious about um, families haven't come up um, and families take all kinds of different forms. So I'm just curious the, how you think about the role of families and how they belong and, and how the kind of belonging that students experience within their family might be part of school. And it's a right. It, uh, this is middle and high school. So that you right, developmentally right there, the, the ways in which one is differentiating and also, you know, in so much in relationship um, with one's parents or family in whatever way it's configured. So I'm just curious how you think about families and their role. Yeah. So we're going to make sure that families are very involved in the school. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's not mandatory. Uh, some families, you know, are super busy, you know, the parents have demanding careers or whatever, but we want to make sure that the culture that we've created in NIA is celebrated or appreciated by the families. This year, I don't think that's too much of a problem. And the reason for that is that we're a brand new school and every student that has enrolled has done so because their parents, their families have met with us, talked with us, uh, connected with us. And there is a energy and a connection that we have with them that is very, very meaningful. And I think without that connection, I don't think these students would have enrolled because it's such a massive risk, right? Uh, it's a brand new school. Who knows uh, what the, and you're playing with your, your most precious thing. You're playing with this thing's future, right? Um, and uh, so, you know, that's something I think that we've always made sure we did was to engage the families and we'll continue to do that. And there's going to be all kinds of like family activities and engagements and things like that. Let's get to some audience questions because they have been rolling in. I love it. So, and we've got some live askers here. So let's start with Matt. Matt has a question. Yeah. Hello, Sam. It's nice to make your acquaintance, Susie and Matt. My name is also Matt, obviously. Um, I have a museum planning and design consultancy in Salem, Massachusetts. 
and I teach in the Museum Studies program at Tufts University. Um, the museum community, like, like the design community, is in this tumultuous place of a paradigm shift around the ideas of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion that swirl around this core idea of empathy. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts about the notion that empathy is humanly inherent and like creativity, perhaps it is accessible by all, but sometimes denied. You know, you hear people say, I'm not creative or that Mac guy, he is so creative, or at least I hope they say that about me. Um, conversely, if you ask someone if they are empathetic, they will probably say, of course I am, because it's such an undeniably desirable trait. So perhaps the language teaching empathy may imply that it's something that you have or you have that or, or you don't, and that uh, empathy is something to be acquired. So if the ability to notice and care is inherent, and I think it is, perhaps what is most teachable is, it, is access to one's inherent power to empathize. And this power for some lies uncovered or undeployed. So as a you know, follow-up question, what are the barriers that lead to this inhibition? Why do people suppress their empathetic selves? I'll, I'm happy to take a stab at it. I, I think that there's a, a lot of stuff going on in there, Matt. Um, first of all, uh, for some reason, uh, our society uh, does not feel comfortable expressing love. And empathy is, is a component of love. We have no problem expressing violence. We see it in all our media, but as soon as uh, we hug our students, we get a warning letter. Or uh, if we express love to another man, as a man, uh, you are, you know, labeled with some, you know, thing. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I have sort of taken head on. Uh, at MIT of all places, where you would think it's not exactly the most loving, compassionate place. And so I think that's something that uh, we are inherently loving. That is true. And it is far more powerful than fear, uh, which is the source of hatred. I think what we need to do is give people permission to love. And that starts with conversations like this and talking about love more frequently and using the word more frequently. And then the last thing I'll add to this is that I am a bit of a stickler for the quality of empathy that one feels. Uh, and by that, I mean, I think a lot of people, when you say the word empathy, they just think, oh, I feel for others. Yeah, that, that, we all do that. But that doesn't mean you, you feel for others in an accurate way. That doesn't mean you fully understand their perspective, right? And so that's why human-centered design is so important and, and practicing human-centered design with a very critical eye, right? And I'll be honest, there's a lot of, a lot of crap going around uh, where you have people who claim to practice human-centered design and they're just going through the motions. And that's really scary to me. So empathy has to be done with, um, has to be done by critical thinkers. And, and I think it has to be taught some methodology to have some sort of substance to it. Yeah, I, I would love to jump in. I, I so agree. And thank you, Matt, for starting off there with love. The thing that I was reaching for, and I know ultimately this is a podcast, so you won't see this, but, but right, I'll describe it. So um, we just relaunched um, kind of an updated version of Liberatory Design. So you can get the cards, um, liberatorydesign.org will take you there. Um, but the first mindset card 
for liberatory design, which is an effort to take human-centered design and remind us of both equity and complexity that we are always operating within. And, and we call it liberatory design for exactly the reason you're describing, Matt, of wanting to encourage and allow and demand that we reckon with what are the forces that prevent us all from being liberated. So that one of the, uh, another mindset card is to recognize oppression, but the very first card is to build relational trust. And the card, the image on the card is of three people and there are big red hearts on them. And that's not to be cheesy, but it is to, to recognize that the work of design if we are thinking about liberation, if we are thinking about ending oppression, is to facilitate, right, and embody and invite the sharing between people that allows for then you to both love yourself and practice self-awareness that is radically needed in order to do this work, and also to, to really pursue radical collaboration and, and working across difference to make change. I think you just answered our next question, but I think Paul should ask it anyway, because I think it's important to dive deeper on. So let's get Paul in here. Okay. Hello. Um, I'm Paul from Uganda. It's been really nice listening to um, the human-centered design concept because I just finished my NIA application like two days ago, and I'm really proud of that. Um, so I, my question was, do you think it's important to have self-awareness like as an essential component in an empathic like experience. So do you think having that type of self-awareness is important um, for an empathic experience? Thank you. So yeah, I'll, I'll jump in on this one. So yes. Yeah, because you were right, <laughs> right there. Right there. Yes. Self-awareness really matters. And I also think it, it might relate to the last question too, of just like, why do we suppress our human-centeredness, right? For whatever reason, um, we do that and practicing self-awareness is a way to uncover what it is that we are uncomfortable with, what it is that our biases or values are that we're bringing to any context, because those are things that stand in the way of empathy and compassion, or they can. No, I just think self-awareness is critical uh, and uh, reflecting, you know, not, uh, I think, yeah, just reflecting every moment, every day, every hour, you know, um, reflecting every morning when you wake up, you know, uh, what was yesterday like and what do I want today to be like? And uh, is this the right thing for me? You know, I ask my, myself these questions every day and, and it helps me really kind of steer my life, but also keep things in context. And it allows me to have more ability to relate to other people. Uh, as I map these feelings I'm having throughout my life. Uh, so when you acknowledge your feelings, you start to inventory all the different flavors of those feelings and the causes of them. And that helps decipher the new scenario that's about to come upon you today <laughs> that, that is unique, but it is a composite in some way of everything you've experienced in the past. So if there's awareness of what you've experienced, it helps you navigate the future. So that I think it's just critical. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just going to say that that raises for me two other mindsets that we like to think about in the context of liberatory design, which are working with fear and discomfort and attending to healing, right? That these are as you, these are 
extensions, I think, of what we're really meaning as we're investigating empathy, that it, this working with self-awareness, investigating that, practicing self-awareness allows you to feel things and then you, right, and then you have to work with those. Um, and you have to, if you're in the context where you're facilitating work with others and inquiring of them and working with them to understand their context and what their experience is in order to co-design, for instance, right, you need to be prepared to hold those feelings, right, and attend to, to needs that arise for, for healing as well. Awesome. This is such a great conversation. Thank you both. And thank you, Matt, for sharing your perspective and the really interesting work that you're doing. A pleasure. Great to spend time with both of you. Really, uh, I took a lot from this. Thank you. Listeners, to check out Matt's work, visit idm.mit.edu. And we'll post links to NIA, the New England Innovation Academy as well. We're going to take a quick break and then return for our weekly dose of good design. Okay, it's my favorite time of the week. Every week, we each share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in some meaningful way. I'll go first. I feel like I'm on a streak of just talking about TV shows, but I'm gonna talk about another TV show. So I'm watching a great show called Mythic Quest. It's on Apple TV Plus. Uh, it's a comedy about a video game design company, a studio. Uh, and they produce one of these like massive online role-playing games. And there's a big community that plays it. And I just love the kind of interplay between the creative folks and then the more like technical folks um, and like the business folks. It just reminds me of my career as a corporate designer and the kind of like navigating all these different relationships. But of course, they do it in a much uh, more fun way than I think I ever experienced. So there's one season on Apple TV Plus that was great, and it kind of follows them as they're trying to launch an expansion to the Mythic Quest game. But my favorite two episodes, they did two special episodes. One was a quarantine episode, which a lot of shows tried to do this, and some did it well. I feel like they had the best quarantine episodes. They're so well done. Uh, and then they just did a, another special episode where everyone's back in the office and they have this like big ceremony about kind of like coming out of quarantine and like coming back to the world. And I don't know, it was funny, but my wife and I were also like tearing up because I don't know if it's like where we're at in this whole pandemic, but it's just a great show. Very well done, very funny, but also heartwarming. So check out Mythic Quest on Apple TV Plus. Okay, Susie, you're up next. Cool. I am sharing the book Designs for the Pluriverse, Radical Interdependence, Autonomy, and the Making of Worlds by Arturo Escobar. I just want to say that it, this is both a scholarly book and a design book. And sometimes design scholarship can get a little dry, but I really experienced this book as yummy. Like I, I really, and it's, it's not that it's not heady because it does talk about things like ontological design as conversations for action. Um, and I always get a little befuddled when talking about ontology <laughs> and yet, and <laughs> yet this book really made it approachable and feel powerful. Um, and 
and it kind of it does a lot of pushing i think really in the context of the conversation that we've been having and i'll just i'll i'll read just one sentence I, i'll just say that they um they're kind of talking about ontological design and saying that this resonates with a design philosophy that emphasizes the engaged experimental and open-ended practices of design research including prototyping and scenario building um, and they're they're really talking about how you can lean into disharmonies which i think is interesting oh yeah that's great awesome thank you for checking that out all right matt you're up mine is going to be mine is very ubiquitous my bicycle my bicycle is one of my favorite things, and I think it has a huge potential to impact this world if more people rode bikes. And that, so for me, you know, what it does is um, it connects me to my environment and it does it at the right scale. You know, like walking's a little too slow. It's a little too, uh, you know, I, I, I want stuff to pass by. I, I need... Yeah, I can eat more than that. You know, I can eat faster. And so on the bike, I can like, it's like, it's giving me the right flow of food and smells and wind. And I'm, and I wave to my neighbors and I'm connected and I, you know, it's just, I'm really alive when I'm on this bike. And at the same time, you know, I'm staying out of the hospital because I'm not, you know, having all kinds of issues around, you know, heart attacks and things like that. And then, um, you know, I'm not burning gas. You know, I'm, and it's, it's just, it's this magical thing, a bicycle. I just love it. Mm -hmm. That's great. It's a, it's a good reminder for us all to get out there. Awesome. Thank you both. That's our show. Thank you again to Dr. Susie Weiss and Matt Cressy for joining us and for this awesome conversation. I loved it. We'll post links to the resources we discussed on our episode page. So visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. And thank you all, our live podcast audience. Your questions were great. The chat was amazing. Thanks for being here. You can always find us on social media. Follow us. We're on Twitter at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. This episode was written, edited, and produced by the amazing Amor Yates with production assistance by the equally amazing Ryan Flom and additional research by also amazing Julia Christian. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for listening, and we'll talk next week. <laughs>